I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the notebook of Sebastian Younger. Sebastian is a journalist, author, and filmmaker. He's written bestsellers to include The Perfect Storm, War, Tribe, and his latest book, Freedom, came out a few weeks ago. He's also the director of the award-winning documentary, Restrepo. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, Freedom. It's It's an interesting examination of what the word freedom means. Over the course of a year, Sebastian and a few of his friends walked about 400 miles of railroad along the East Coast. And so this book recounts this journey about them dodging police officers, sleeping under bridges, coming into contact with shady individuals, and and walking through tough neighborhoods. And it also weaves in stories about labor strikes, American Indians, women's roles in resistance movements, to help understand the tension between being a member of a tribe or community and having freedom. In addition to talking about all of those things in this episode, we also discuss some of the other themes he's written about. We discuss why combat deployments are such a powerful force in the lives of those who've experienced them. He shares leadership lessons he's observed when he embedded with uh, members of the Northern Alliance before 9-11 and U.S. military units after 9-11. So there's so much great stuff in this episode. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Sebastian Younger. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. So my first question is, you have a new book that just came out called Freedom. Could you talk a little bit about what that book is about? Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, it's about freedom, but it's from a sort of odd angle. I tried to figure out what has enabled people throughout history to remain free. And and for all practical purposes, that means a smaller group maintains their autonomy autonomy in the face of a more powerful group that would otherwise control them. And basically, there's three main ways to maintain your autonomy, to maintain your freedom. You can outrun your oppressor. 
If you can't outrun them, you can outfight them. And if you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And so my book, it's a short book. It's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. And, you know, I talk about Genghis Khan and nomadism in, in Asia and the Montenegrins that fought off the Ottoman Empire at, you know, odds of like 10 to 1, the Easter Rising in Ireland, the labor movement in the early part of the 20th century. I take a look at a lot of different things throughout world history, boxing, fighting, you know, sort of one-on-one fighting. But I also woven through the book is an account of this trip that I took. I walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, and then we turned west and headed for Pittsburgh. And it was around 400 miles. We were basically high-speed vagrants. It was me and two, three other guys. And we'd all been in a lot of combat. And, you know, it was totally illegal, of course. So we had to dodge the cops and maintain a low profile. But we were really going through society at the margins of society. We're sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and, you know, cooking our meals out in the woods over fires and getting our water out of creeks and stuff. And we called it the last patrol. And, and it was an amazing trip through this amazing and bizarre country that we live in. And it was also the time that I've been freest in my life in some sense. Like, as I say in the book, most nights we were the only people who knew where we were. And there's many definitions of freedom, but surely that's one of them. So that account is woven through my exploration of freedom on a more um, historical or biological level. So this sounds like the idea of just, hey, let's go walk the railroad lines along the East Coast. It sounds like an idea that some buddies and I would come up with at a bar one night, but like never actually follow through with it. Where did you get this idea from? From staring out the Amtrak window on the trip down to D.C. with my my buddy, Tim Hetherington, that I made Restrepo with my documentary of an outpost, American outpost in eastern Afghanistan. And we were going down to D.C. to talk to National Geographic, actually, about whether they would buy our film. And I just, you know, I just stare out the window most of the time. And, and I realized I said to Tim, like, hey, man, we could walk this entire thing almost everywhere along the whole line. There's a dirt bike trail or there's a maintenance road there's a cornfield and there's, this, you know, whatever. Like you'd have to pick your way through the suburbs and the inner cities and stuff like that. But but the railroad line is basically a swath of no man's land that cuts straight through the heart of American society. And I was like, you know, it'd be a weird trip, but we could do it. So I was going to do it with him. And then he got killed in Libya, covering the civil war in Libya, an event that, um, you know, really deeply, deeply rocked me and devastated me. And, you know, eventually I, I took the trip with a few other guys, including um, a Spanish journalist named Guillermo Cervera, who was uh, with Tim when he died. He was holding his hand in the back of a rebel pickup truck in Misrata, Libya. I got to know Guillermo quite well, and I invited him along. He's an amazing photographer from Spain. And then a couple of American guys. And we set off. It was over the course of about a year. We took multiple trips. It wasn't one long 400-mile walk. It was divided up into chunks of like 50 miles or 100 miles or whatever. And, you know, so it, it took place over the course of all four seasons, right in the middle of the 2012 election cycle, just coincidentally. But the time span gave us a variety of experience and different kinds of weather. And frankly, the country was changing very fast at that point. It was an amazing, profound experience. I mean, I think it's maybe it's the most important thing I've ever done, that and being out at Restrepo for a year. As a military leader myself, I mean, like the books that I first read of yours, you know, were Tribe and War. And so, like, I wonder, you know, as you made this walk, you're 
walking the railroads, like you said, it was illegal. You know, anything could happen. There's all sorts of folks out there. You know, you're free of a lot of the social structures that we put ourselves under on a daily basis. Like, did that remind you of your time in Afghanistan? Yeah, it did. I mean, there was an inherent danger in that environment. The trains are going, you know, up to a buck 40. You know, you can get killed really easily out there just by the trains. And then there were some pretty weird people out there. You know, it's no man's land. And so, you know, there's no police out there at all other than the railroad cops. And they're pretty easy to avoid. There's no surveillance. There's no floodlights or, you know, security cameras or nothing. I mean, it really is. It's a very weird place. And uh, we were very security conscious. I mean, we had a uh, we had a machete. And that was our main weapon if we needed it, you know, which we never did. And uh, we all had knives and we had our our minds, you know, we were we were smart about it. We slept in way, you know, we didn't have tents or anything. We slept in ways that were hard to see, you know, places that were hard to see. And we just were situationally aware. And so all of that reminded me a little bit of combat and also the bond that sort of like was created between us. I mean, if you're with some people, the harder the thing you're doing and the more dangerous the thing you're doing, the closer you're going to feel to them. And what's interesting about that is you're going to feel closer to them, even if you don't like them. And I like these guys a lot, but even it doesn't even matter. Like in, in the, the situation creates a loyalty to the group that really transcends your personal feelings. And that was certainly true in combat. And I saw a bit of that on the last patrol as well. And again, we all liked each other, but there were definitely moments of friction, but we all needed each other, even if it was mundane things like one guy gets water from the river and pumps it to clear that, you know, bacteria out of it. And another guy starts the fire and another guy sort of scouts ahead to see if there's anyone close by, you know, whatever. We had tasks we had to do. And some of those tasks, you know, we were, you know, one of our trips was in midwinter. It was, you know, 15 degrees at night. I mean, it was cold and we didn't have shelter, right? We had a tarp. That was it. So you really had to have your, your act together. And that very much reminded me of combat. For me, like I was at the the tactical level as a platoon leader and company commander in Iraq during the surge, and then shortly after that, and then much later in my career in Afghanistan at a higher level. But one of the things that I really appreciated about the deployments was like this daily sense of purpose. And everything that you do matters. Everything you do has like an end state to it. And I feel like that's a lot different from when you're back in garrison and you're kind of back in like what we would call the real world, you know? Did you yeah. get a sense of that on, on your last patrol? Yes. I mean, the purpose was self-given. We had decided that we were going to walk to Pittsburgh. So it wasn't the kind of purpose that comes down from the command or from the country, frankly, after 9-11, there was a huge sense of, I imagine, for soldiers and even for journalists, there was a very powerful sense of purpose. This was a moment in history that we had to face, that we had to tackle. I mean, those are heady feelings, right? Well, the last patrol wasn't quite that grand and important, but it was a decision we all made. And then once you've made a decision and are in it, it sort of creates its own logic. It creates its own rationale. So we were walking the rail lines because we were walking the rail lines. You know, it became very circular. And there was also the stakes, like I said, the stakes were quite high. And so just the kind of vigilance that we had to keep it made it feel important, even though we were doing it for ourselves. We weren't doing it for anyone else. We were doing it for ourselves. But it still created that really intense feeling of meaning that can come from something, you know, frankly, more important, like fighting a war that the nation has asked people to fight. Were there any moments that stood out to you during that journey? Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, of course. I We walked through the, the ghettos of Baltimore and, and uh, you know, pretty rough neighborhood and 
you know, the, the people were just so unbelievably friendly, like, and I didn't know what to expect before white guys. Right. And I like, what's going to happen. And people were so sweet. They're offering us water. Hey, where are you guys going? You guys. Okay. Like some kid started throwing a football with us. Like that was an amazing moment. You know, this country's got a lot of problems, racial problems, social problems, economic problems. And at the end of the day, like I sort of felt like, wow, if you're a good person, and you act respectfully, you can connect almost anybody, anywhere, no who they are. And that, that to me is an extremely powerful thing. You know, they're also, you know, being an outsider didn't always work for us. Like in Pennsylvania, someone emptied a pistol over our heads and, uh, you know, triggered some pretty intense reactions because <laughs> the last time we'd all been shot at was in Afghanistan, you know? So we didn't see him. He was sort of back away. He shot over our heads and then he took off. And But we really scrambled. I mean, so that stood out as well. But, but, you know, mostly it was just day after day of like very hard work, you know, walking along the railroad lines. We were carrying pretty heavy packs. We were carrying all our food. We'd resupply. We'd walk through towns and get more food or whatever. But we were carrying a fair amount of gear. The sort of rock cobble that you walk on, they sometimes walk on is called top ballast. And it can be really hard to walk on. And then you know, the engineers would call you in, right? So you had to be really attuned. We got very, very attuned to the world, right? We had enough time. If you really like were plugged in, you could feel trains coming before you could see them. And certainly before they could see you, you just got to feel it in the air. You, it was beyond human hearing. I don't even know what it was. It was almost like these trains were so big and so fast and so heavy that they, it's almost like they set the world into motion a little bit and you could feel it. And we'd bail out, you know, we'd dive into the underbrush and the trains would go by. And sometimes we knew cops were looking for us. And so we'd had to be super careful. And sometimes we'd walk at night because everything out there has to have a headlight on it. So if you're just, you know, on foot, you see them long before any cops see you. So the intensity of that endeavor day after day, and then we always had to find a place to sleep and get a meal going for ourselves at night and just doing that over and over again. It weren't even individual moments, but the experience as an entity as a whole was unbelievably satisfying. Yeah, and early in the book, you talk about something that I know a lot of soldiers can relate to is a foot march. Just kind of the mindset, uh, the rhythm you get into. I mean, were there times that you wanted to stop along the way? Oh my God. I spent the whole time wanting to stop. I mean, seriously, walking with a load is just one long argument with your body. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I have two young children and it's a little bit like trying to convince your four-year-old to do something. I was like, no, you're going to do this. And they're like, no, I'm not. And I feel like walking was a little bit like that. The, you know, each individual step is fairly easy. It's not a lot of energy, but it takes a small decision. Like, okay, one step, another step. And you just keep doing that. You're doing that for hours, right? Hours and days. And so what we were always, always looking for is a feeling of what I call cadence, which, you know, has a different meaning in the military, but like in my meaning of it, the meaning that I used, cadence was a kind of rhythm that would become so powerful. And it was a rhythm that was enjoyed by the whole group. Like the whole group could fall into it. It would become so powerful. You got such a feeling of rhythm and movement of velocity, that it almost started to feel easier to keep walking than to stop. Stopping looked like the thing that was harder. And that doesn't last, you know, that only lasts for a certain amount of time. You know, eventually your body just gets played out. But for a while, you could get into the, I could get into this sort of intoxicated feeling of like, that I just wanted to keep moving, that that was actually the easiest thing to do. And yeah, I mean, you know, one time we walked from 6am till midnight, 
you know, I think we must have covered 25 or 30 miles. Another time we did a 40 and 40, 40 miles and 40 hours. And again, if you're an ultra marathoner, that's not a big deal, but we weren't in running shoes with a camelback. You know, we were loaded down with 60, 70 pounds. So 40 and 40 was like, that was a tough deal. That just about broke me. How far did you eventually get in your walk? It was, you know, about 400 miles. I don't know exactly how much, but we finished in a town called Connellsville, Pennsylvania, which is just short of Pittsburgh. And one of the things that when I was reading the book, I thought was really powerful and I don't know if you want to talk about it in this interview, is the reason that you ultimately ended up stopping. Yeah, we we didn't really have an endpoint. The sort of way station was Pittsburgh, but I'm like, you know, beyond that, you cross the Ohio River, then you're in Ohio. I mean, that was the big jumping off point in American history. Then you're in the Ohio and the whole rest of the country is before you, you know, and I just, I was like, I mean, we could just keep going, you know? What we would do is return to where we'd left off on the, you know, on the following trip, we'd return to where, wherever we stopped. I was like, damn, we could just keep going across the Ohio and just keep going west. And two out of four of us, two people out of four, me being one of them, was we getting divorced. Our lives were changing. And it wasn't, we never talked about it. I mean, literally in 400 miles, nobody brought it up. Like I didn't bring it up. The other guy didn't bring it up. And the guys who weren't getting divorced didn't bring it up either. Like nobody talked about it. And then finally at the end, we got to Connellsville and I, I wanted, there was a place outside Connellsville called Jumonville Glen. And it was basically the place where the French and Indian War started. George Washington, as a young lieutenant, 21 or something, had some colonial forces out there looking for a French patrol. And he had some, a Seneca scouting party with him, including a, a war leader named the Half King. Tenegrisson was his, was his Seneca, Seneca name. And they found these French guys and surrounded them and ambushed them at dawn where they were camped in this little glen. And they eventually gave up. They took some casualties and the French contingent gave up. And the half king ran forward with the tomahawk and split the French commander's head open. The French had killed his father and he wanted revenge. And that murder, and it was a murder, that murder totally traumatized Washington, but it made the French send reinforcements to that area, which got the Brits to send reinforcements. It resulted in a massive, disastrous defeat called Braddock's Defeat. And that made the Brits realize that the whole entire rest of the continent, the entire Ohio River Valley was um, in danger of being seized by the French. So they mobilized and that produced the first global war, the Seven Years War, the French and Indian War. It all started in this little glen, this little hollow in the woods outside Connellsville. And we wanted to it's like a little state park or something. And we wanted to sneak in there and sleep there. There was this little creek drainage that ran up towards the glen. You know, we were going to sneak in over the ridge and through the woods and up, you know, sort of the way Washington probably approached the area 250 years ago. And, and um, at the end of the day, we were in Connellsville and my, our feet were shredded. It was 100 degrees. I mean, we were all just broken men. And I just had this. We swam in the river in downtown Connellsville. It's a very poor city, incredibly poor. And people get out of the heat by wading into the river in downtown Connellsville. Right. And we so we did the same. And. We had our dog with us and we were sitting there on the rocks. And um, I just had this sudden moment of thinking, you know what? This was a really hard trip. And now the hard thing is going to be to go home and face my life, which needed to be faced. And everyone was just broken. And uh, like now we all have to go home and sort of resume our lives, particularly the two guys who were getting divorced. We pulled the plug on it. And um, it was a very, very good decision. Yeah, like I said, I, I remember reading that and I didn't know where you were going. Like you started talking about 
the potential to continue going west. And then it just ended there. And I was like, wow, that's so powerful. But it, I remember it made me put the book down for a minute and just start reflecting on my own life and wondering like, what, what was I not facing and continuing to kind of run after, you know, experiences and other things. So hopefully we're not spoiling the book for people. It's a great book. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think those sort of mighty endeavors, those sort of painful experiences can be a great way of sort of purging yourself, cleansing yourself from difficult experiences, painful experiences. But those kinds of trips, those kinds of endeavors can also be a way to hide. And you got to know which is which. I mean, I'm a longtime athlete. You know, I was a really competitive runner in high school and college. I ran some pretty good times, like mile, two mile, you know, even the marathon after college. Like I was really competitive. It was a, just for sort of personal, emotional reasons. It was a lifesaver running, you know, 100 miles a week. You know, that kind of training was a lifesaver for me. It eventually became something that was like keeping me from developing as a person and really dealing with things. And so you got to know when you reach that point where, as I say in the book, like, there are places where your life is sort of waiting for you. When you get to that place, your life is there waiting for you. And then the next thing you have to do is engage with your life. And I had that feeling in Connellsville. Like I was 51, I think, 52 years old. And I was like, oh, here it is. This is my life. I've finally caught up with it. Now I have some different kind of work to do. And I did it. And I did it, you know, partly because I'd taken this trip. It changed me, changed my soul, changed my mind, changed my body. It changed me at every level and it were changes that I really needed. So like on that topic of change, I mean, what did that experience along with your research on the different areas that you were walking in, some of the stories you tell in the book, what, what did that teach you about freedom? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing about freedom. Like when we were walking through Pennsylvania in the mid midwinter, this guy, we saw this car up ahead of us and, and on the tracks and we sort of stopped and put our binoculars on it because we thought it was a cop and we sort of watched him for a while. He was a long way off. And uh, you really had to look, you really had to sort of look down track very carefully um, to make sure you didn't, didn't just walk into a patrol car, you know, like, so we stopped and watched him. We realized it wasn't cops. We kept going. He got out of his car and he asked us some questions and, um, you know, it was cold as hell. It was snow. I mean, it was a tough day. He was, he goes, listen, I can be back here in 20 minutes with my gear. If you'll let me come with you. And, um, is like, I don't mind the cold at all. Like, please let me come with you. And I, you know, he didn't say what he was trying to get away from, or he seemed like a totally nice guy. I, I said, no, I just didn't need him in my life. And I hope he figured himself out in some other way. But what I say in the book is like that guy, you know, he was trying to be free of something at home, whatever it was. But what he would have found was that whatever his obligations were in his life, maybe it was a job, maybe it was a marriage, a mortgage, I mean, whatever it was. He would have replaced those obligations with obligations to us because in our little group, everyone needed to contribute and to participate. Freedom is freedom from oppression. It's not freedom from obligation. And your primary obligation is to the group. And in the context of this walk, the group was four men. And he would have become part of that group. And he would have been part of that group because he was willing to do the things with us that needed to be done every day. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't be part of the group. And so freedom is, you know, in some ways it's, a, um, in some ways it's unattainable because the only way humans can stay safe and relatively secure is to enjoy the protection and the affiliation of a group of some size, right? Humans die in nature by themselves. They die very quickly. We survive and we thrive 
because we function in groups. And as soon as you're in a group, you owe your loyalty and you owe a certain amount of duty to that group. And you're not free from the norms of that group. So in world history, small groups have had to maintain their autonomy from more powerful groups, whatever, the insurgents versus the empire or whatever. It's happened in a, many, many forms throughout history. But if you're in that small group that's maintaining its autonomy, you have to abide by the norms of that group. And you're not free within that group. You owe it your service, and you may even owe it your life. And so what I found when I was looking at the history of the frontier in Pennsylvania, and that was, I mean, that was a bloody, rugged piece of American history. Oh, my God. I mean, the settlers that went into Indian territory in the 1700s, I mean, that was hard fought land. I mean, they, it, it was extremely dangerous. And these people left colonial society later American society because they were poor, they were desperate, they didn't like the strictures of the colonial government, they didn't like the church and the government breathing down their neck. So they went into the wilderness, which gave them an enormous, an enormous freedom. But it also meant that they desperately needed each other in order to survive the threat of Indian attacks. And so these little communities on the Pennsylvania frontier had very, very rigid rules that govern people's behavior. And, you know, one of them is if you were a male, if you were a man age 14 or over, you had to at all times carry a rifle, a scalping knife, and a tomahawk because you had to be ready to fight at any moment because that's how fast these Indian raids could come. And if you did not walk around fully armed and prepared to defend the community to the death, you were an outcast. You were shunned. You wouldn't get married. You wouldn't have friends. You know, see you later. And so what these people had done and what we all do is trade one form of freedom, one form of obligation for another. And the tricky thing, you know, I don't really write about modern America, but our group, our primary survival group is 330 some million people, right? This nation. And like it or not, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or don't vote or whatever. Like we all owe our survival in part to the fact that this nation functions and it can defend itself militarily. It has a supply chain that we can rely on. Nobody is completely independent from this society. And if they were severed from this society, they would die very quickly. And that means that we all have to think as citizens, what do we owe this country? There is always an exchange of some sort. And you can owe something without being legally forced to pay it. But you can argue that there's a moral duty, if you're part of this nation, to contribute to its welfare. And it's a voluntary contribution, but you can argue that it's there. And so that, you know, I don't really discuss this in the book, but it's a pretty easy conversation to have if you read my book. It's very clear that that's the human reality when it comes to the society that guarantees your survival. So when I finished Freedom, I actually went back and I picked up Tribe again and reread it. And I really felt like those two books were connected. Just like you said, you keep saying group in your, in your previous answer, but I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's your tribe. And so do you feel like those books are connected? Oh, very much so. They're both sort of core human values, tribe, community, the group that you're part of, the survival group that you're part of, whether it's the United States or a small hunter group of hunter gatherers in the Kalahari Desert in Africa, that belonging to that group is a core human value. and it's stressful, it's hard, it's difficult, it's wonderful. You know, it's sort of all these all these different things, but it goes to the heart of the human experience. 
And the thing about freedom is that, I mean, you're, you will lose your freedom in one of two ways. You will lose your freedom because the group you're part of is oppressed by a larger, more powerful group. But if your group is well-organized enough, well-armed enough to defend itself against an enemy, it's also well-organized enough to oppress itself, to oppress its own members. And so there's this constant sort of dynamic tension between having a society that's militaristic enough to defend itself, but also egalitarian enough so that its own members feel a basic sense of equality and freedom within their society, even though they owe their society a certain amount of toil and maybe even blood. So the trick to a just society is having those two forces in balance. And for most of human history, of course, we survived in small groups as hunter-gatherers. Those groups were very egalitarian. It was very, very hard for one person to oppress anyone else in a group like that because it's a survival-level group. People are living off the land. Human beings are allergic to oppression in small groups. I mean, they really, you know, bullies are just universally reviled. And in hunter-gatherer groups, alpha males that try to bully the group are very often just killed. It gets harder as society gets more complex. Agriculture starts, wealth can be accumulated, soldiers can be essentially rented and used to control the population. Pretty quickly, as societies get more complex, rulers are, are able to oppress their own people. And, you know, of course, Western civilization has brought wonderful good things to the world. But one of the sort of noxious developments is oppressive rulers that are out for their own good and do not feel that they represent the welfare of their people. One of the things that I appreciated about freedom, you wrote a little bit about leadership when you were talking about like the Apaches. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like what does do trampler mean? Yeah. So the Apache word for leader, for war leader was do trampler. And what the connotation was that the leader went first on these raids. And the, the Apache were amazing raiders. I mean, they were expected to be able to cover 40, 50, 60, 70 miles a day on foot through the desert. They could outrun U.S. cavalry in rough terrain. I mean, they were unbelievable fighters. And the war leaders literally went first. And so these raids would happen, you know, in the early, you know, 4 a.m., 3, 4, 5 a.m., when the dew was up. And so that word meant that the leader was the first in line. He was the first to confront danger. And the point that I make, you know, I was trying to figure out in my book, like what are the qualities that outgunned, outnumbered insurgencies have, or political groups have, or labor movements or whatever, like the underdog in these fights, what qualities do they have in common that allow them to defeat a greater power, a larger power, the US government, a British government in Ireland, the Ottomans in Montenegro, what, what have you. And I brought this all the way down to the level of individual combat. Humans are pretty much the only animal where a smaller combatant can defeat a larger combatant. I mean, just about every other species, the largest male physically dominates every one-on-one -on -one fight. And in humans, that is not true at all. And we're totally exceptional in that way. So what are the qualities that successful small group actions have? They're reactive, they're fast, they're mobile, they move around, they don't stay in one place if they're gonna get pummeled. They outlast their oppressor. They are more invested in winning because it's sort of you know live free or die, basically. 
that's not true for the, you know, the quote empire. But one of the things that's very, very important is that you have leadership that's willing to die, literally or metaphorically. You have leadership that is prepared to, in fact, eager to face the same threats, the same dangers as the people they lead with them, shoulder to shoulder. When you have leadership that sort of hides behind other people, and that could be in the business world. I mean, you have people, you know, corporate leaders that are getting uh, huge, huge bailouts, salary bailouts while their company is floundering. That's not leadership. It's not real leadership. They're just running a company, but they're not leading a company. And, you know, likewise, with political leaders, military leaders, if you are prepared to die for the people that you're leading, you are a real leader. I think that's rarer and rarer in today's world. So you've embedded with the Northern Alliance, U.S. units, and other forces that were fighting. What are some of the best combat leadership practices you've witnessed that span both the freedom fighters and the conventional military forces? Well, I mean, just while we're on the topic, yeah, I mean, I've I've seen uh, some remarkable examples of leaders who put themselves at enormous risk to safeguard the lives of of their men. The first example at hand is Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the leader of the Northern Alliance. I mean, he was, if you will, the general Petraeus of the anti-Taliban forces after and before 9-11. And I was with him for a couple of months in Badakhshan in the fall of 2000. So one year before 9-11, he was in a desperate fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. He was greatly outnumbered and outgunned. And he was preparing an infantry assault up a ridgeline trying to take an entrenched position on a bridge line to open up his supply routes before winter set in. It was a pretty desperate, pretty desperate move. But he was a brilliant tactician, and he wanted to send his men on a route up the incline that did not go through a minefield. He knew where the minefields were. So he went forward into no man's land with a couple of other commanders. He went forward into no man's land with a pair of binoculars, and he crept towards the Taliban front lines to scout out exactly which route his men should take. And he came so close to the Taliban that they started shooting at him. And a bullet skipped through the dirt between his feet. I mean, that's how close he got. You know, we have a modern military where this isn't necessary. It's probably not desirable. But just as a moral trait, a moral quality, imagine if our generals were prepared to do that. It'd be rather, really rather extraordinary. And, and you know, that was why Masood was loved by his fighters and why they did what he said. But then skip forward some years, I'm with an American platoon in combat in the Korangal Valley. We were having sort of a rough day. The guys were having a pretty rough day. They ran out of water. They were drinking the fluid in their IV bags. We're on a bridge line. And the ICOM chatter came through that the Taliban had us in their sights from both sides. So we're on this knife edge ridge. And there was nothing to get behind because there was Taliban in front of us and behind us. There was nowhere to hide. And we were about to get hammered. And Lieutenant Piosa, platoon leader, stood up in this hair-raising moment. And we were all just sort of clenched waiting for it. And he stood up to see where his heavy weapons were, his uh, heavy machine guns were. He wanted to sort of reorganize the defense a little bit. And one of the staff sergeants said, sir, please sit down. Please take cover. You know, we need you to survive this your job to lead the men. It's our job to get shot at. So please, you know, please sit down. Whatever you need to know, I'll find out. To me, that is just like incredibly courageous and noble. And that's real leadership. And I know it's a lot to ask that of our political leadership, but I think it can be done. I think there's a way to ask our political leaders to put the interests of the nation ahead of their own political interests. I don't think it's almost never done, but it can be done. We can insist on it. 
I think we could take as a direct example the actions of people like Masood and Lieutenant Piosa. Thank you for that, Sebastian. And as I've read your books and you know, just talked to you on this interview, like one of the things that really stands out is that you like literally have like lifetimes of experience in your what, like 54, 55 years now. And so you also have two young daughters. So like, what are a few of the lessons that, that you want to pass on to them? I think that probably the most important lesson is that you are part of humanity and you are part of all of humanity. I'm an atheist, right? But I'm part of a humanity that the majority of which believes in God, right? And I don't, but I'm part of that. I happen to be white. I think the world is in a complicated place right now. And I think what will see us through it is an awareness that, like, at the end of the day, the most important thing that we are is human. And that puts us in league with 7 billion other people and no better and no worse than those 7 billion people. And if we can live our lives with that foremost in our minds and with a really dedicated sort of empathy for other people, that will solve a lot of problems. And, you know, it goes against all of our human evolution. I mean, there's nothing in human evolution that has prepared us to think outside of our the interests of our small group, right? It's adaptive to attend to your own and ignore everybody else. I mean, that was has been adaptive for hundreds of thousands of years. It no longer is. And, you know, I think we're going to take our daughters. We're going to live in every continent in the world. You know, we live in a mixed race, mixed income neighborhood in New York City. The most intoxicating feeling that I think I know is this awareness that, like, you're part of this enormous thing called the human race. And that's the joy of that realization is something I would like to impart to my children. That's powerful. And as we wrap up this interview, I know you're, you know, in addition to being a father, husband, writer, you're you're also an avid reader of books like me. And so for the final question, what are a few books that you would recommend to folks who are trying to figure out how to live a life of purpose? (laughs) I'm not sure if books can explain how to live a life of purpose, but I can give you a few books that have changed me enormously and I think broadened my mind. I was a big fan of Peter Matheson. He's written some extraordinary books, an amazing writer. Cormac McCarthy is an amazing writer, Joan Didion. There was a book that I was very impressed by. This may be worth mentioning in the context that you're asking, called Radical Hope by a philosopher named Jonathan Lear. And it's about the life of a pro-warrior named Punticoot in the 1870s. And the Crow had a very intense warrior culture. And the warriors were imbued with this idea that you fought to the very end, sacrificed your life without a hesitation to defend the tribe. And what he realized in confronting white society is that the whites were invincible. They were unstoppable. And that if you applied this warrior ethos to an unstoppable force, the result is that everyone was going to die. Your entire tribe was going to get wiped out. In this new era, the warrior ethos properly understood, meant not fighting. It meant learning how to read and learning how to farm. And with those weapons, you could defend your tribe. It required the warriors to completely dismantle their warrior, to re-understand their warrior ethos, in a sense, wage war through peace. Of course, that's the challenge of every combat vet that comes back to this country. Like, how do you dismantle that warrior 
ethos, because if you don't, it will kill you. It could kill you and it could kill other people. You have to protect those around you. You have to dismantle it. And so this book, Radical Hope, which is not a self-help book, it's a book of philosophy and history, but it was the radical hope that Plentycu derived for the new era where being a warrior meant being a farmer. And I think there's an enormous lesson there for our returning veterans, for all of us, for any middle-aged person. I mean, I read it when I was in my mid-40s. The parallels with the aging process are, are uncannily good. But, you know, it's the ultimate situation where this Indian war leader was trying to figure out what's the purpose of life if you have to give up to the enemy. And he found it. He figured it out. So, yes, maybe to answer to answer your question more directly, Radical Hope by Jonathan Lear is an extraordinary book that speaks to that. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Sebastian. I really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed reading Freedom, rereading Tribe and rereading War before this interview. If folks who listen to this podcast are interested in learning more about you, where can they find you? I have a website, SebastianYounger.com. There's also a Facebook page, Twitter, all that stuff. But my website is sort of a catch-all for everything. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Hope they won't shoot me down soon.